Great. Wonderful. Good to be with you all. Wasn't it good just to reflect and remember, obviously, those fallen heroes, people who sacrificed everything for our freedom, and then to just remember and reflect on Jesus's incredible sacrifice for us. We're going to be looking a lot about that over these next few weeks as we continue our series on the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews 4. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through to chapter 5, verse 10. We're going to be looking at how Jesus is our great high priest. But as I said, it was just so good just to reflect on what Jesus has done. When was the last time that you reflected and just paused for a moment, maybe it was even just now, as we spent those moments in silence reflecting on what Jesus has done. But as a follower of Jesus, when was the last time you really stopped and reflected on the incredible truth that you get to experience the very presence of God? The incredible privilege of been invited into a relationship with the creator and sustainer of the whole world. You get to speak to him, and incredibly, he listens. He hears you. I love that line in that song we've just sung. The king of kings calls me his own. Just allow the truth of that to sink in fresh this morning. We have the ear of the one who is sitting on heaven's throne, surrounded by angelic beings, singing day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and his attention is on you. It is mind-blowing, isn't it? And it is deeply humbling deeply humbling that this morning we come to gather in his name as his children and he chooses to presence himself to dwell amongst us by his spirit he says i will inhabit the praises of my people he he wants to come and lift our heads he wants to come and fill our gaze. He says, I have got fresh mercy for you today. I have got fresh hope for you today. I've got fresh grace and strength and joy and peace. I've got direction to give to you today. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? And yet, how often I know I can come to worship on a Sunday or, or during the week, pick up my Bible and just pray to God in such a flippant manner. And so I think it's really healthy to have moments like we had this morning just to stop and reflect that all of this is because of Jesus. All of it. The very reason we have access to God the Father is because of Jesus. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews really focuses on. 
The last few weeks, we've seen how the writer just is wanting to elevate people's understanding and vision of who Jesus is. He is supreme over all things. He starts the letter off. He is greater than the angels. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than Joshua. He now says Jesus is the greater high priest. And this is a major theme that runs right the way through the book of Hebrews, trusting in Jesus's finished work, that he is seated on the throne in heaven, and we can hold on to the promises that are yes and amen in him, particularly through the difficult times. And if you remember, that's the context of this letter. The, the, the writer to the Hebrews was, was writing to people who were being persecuted and would face massive persecution in the subsequent years. But we can hold fast onto the promises of God because Jesus is our great high priest. And, and that whole concept of the Jewish priesthood would, of course, be very familiar to the letter's audience, because from the moment God gave Moses the law, he also appointed Aaron to be the high priest, to be the people's mediator, their representative between God and man. They would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people to keep the people right before a holy and just God. And year after year, Time and time again, these sacrifices, these offerings would have to be made. It was the priest's job to, to basically be a bridge, if you like, between the people and God. And only the priest would be able to tentatively push past the Holy of Holies curtain and experience the presence of God. The people would have to stay far off. And so for generation after generation, Aaron's descendants, the tribe of Levi, would inherit this, this priestly role. And yet these priests were ultimately flawed. They were human, sinful. And, and for all the, the ceremonial cleansing and rituals that they had to perform, they still had to offer sacrifices for their own sin before representing the people. And we read tragically in the Old and right into the New Testament about flawed priest after flawed priest. And it starts right at the beginning with Aaron, allowing the people to, to build a golden calf and worship that while Moses was off receiving the law, the Ten Commandments. Fallen right through to people like Eli's sons who abused their position, got drunk slept around, just horrific abuse of their priestly position. Right into the New Testament, we see the corrupt and fallen high priests in Jesus' time. Sadly, we still see that today. People setting themselves up between God and man said, if you want to get to God, you've got to go through me, and then abusing that position. And here the writer in Hebrews, praise God, is saying, actually, there is now only one mediator. There is only one true high priest who perfectly bridges the gap between man and God. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Only one and he is a totally different high priest altogether. 
So let's read how he is described. Hebrews 4, reading from verse 14. Therefore, so he's just the writer's just been talking about how Jesus is greater than Moses and Joshua. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Key difference between Jesus, our great high priest, and all who went before him, all who were just a pale foreshadow of what was to come, was that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And that makes all the difference. Being fully God, Jesus didn't just get to creep behind the temple into the Holy of Holies. It says, no, no, he is the great high priest who has ascended into heaven itself. He is the one who is sitting on the throne of heaven at the right hand of God the Father. He is right there in the throne room, on the throne. And it, and it the mind-blowing nature of the gospel doesn't just stop there because Ephesians 2.6 tells us that in Christ, God has raised us up and seated us in heavenly places. We too are right in the throne room spiritually with God. We get to enter the very presence of God because Jesus has gone before us. Jesus is sitting on the throne. That is why when Jesus died on the cross... You remember the temple curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the inner courts and outer courts. That was torn from top to bottom because there was now no more need for separation because through Christ we have access, full access to the Father. The, the curtain was no longer required. I love how Warren Wearsby in his um, commentary puts it. He says, grace no longer hides in a tent. I like that. Grace is available to all through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Secondly, because Jesus is fully God, his sacrifice that he offered was perfect. Why? Because he offered himself. He offered himself. Again, just so good to remember the sacrifice of those who gave their lives for their country. Jesus gave his life for his enemies while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Amazing. And his sacrifice was perfect. And we're going to be looking more at that in a few weeks' time, how Jesus is the greatest sacrifice. But he was the unblemished lamb Every lamb that was sacrificed before just pointed to him, was just a pale imitation of him, the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I always try and imagine what it must have been like in the old covenant, bringing your offering to the high priest, thinking, is this good enough? Is this blemish free? 
Will my offering, my sacrifice, will it be accepted? Will I be accepted by God? Will it pass the required standard? Thing is, we still can approach God in that same attitude. As we come to God, we can think, am I good enough? If I'm honest, I feel stained, tainted. This week was just not a good week for me. I've had better weeks. I haven't been a good example of a follower of Jesus this week. I just feel tainted in what I said, in what I thought, in what I looked at, the way I spent my time. You know, maybe I'll just stay back. I don't feel like I'm going to be accepted. And I don't want to feel like I'm going to be rejected, so I'll just stay far back. I don't feel holy enough. Folks, that is old covenant thinking. That is old covenant thinking because the gospel, the good news of Jesus says, we can enter the very throne room of God confidently because God is not looking at what we can offer. He is not looking at our performance or our track record. He is simply looking at his perfect, holy, spotless son. When people brought that lamb to the high priest, the high priest wasn't looking at what the person was wearing and how they acted and all that. He was just focused on the lamb. When we come to God, God is focused on the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's focused on his son. And his son is perfect. That is why we can come confidently. That is why we do not need to feel shame. Because Jesus took that shame upon upon himself, upon the cross. That's why we get in Hebrews 9 later on, verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences? from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Jesus doesn't want us bound up in shame because that just limits us, our ability to to serve his purposes. You know, that's exactly what the enemy wants. He wants us wrapped up in shame. He wants us locked up because he doesn't want us to serve God. He wants us to stand far off. Actually, I'm a useless. I'm no good. I'm always failing. No, no, that's exactly. It's always been his plan. Right from the very beginning, wasn't it? In the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, first thing they did, they felt shame. They hid. I'm going to stand far off from God. I'm going to hide. I can't approach confidently. I'm just going to hide. That is still the enemy's plan today. And yet... Because we have Jesus as our representative, because we have Jesus as our great high priest, because he is our perfect sacrifice, we don't need to hide. We know we are covered, covered by the blood that he shed. Same way those Israelites were covered when they painted the lamb's blood on their doorposts just before they made the exodus out of Egypt covered by the blood. We're blood-bought, we're redeemed, we're cleansed, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. That is why we do not need to stand far off, but we can confidently approach 
the throne of grace. Thirdly, being fully God means that Jesus' priestly reign will last forever. This isn't just a temporal situation. This is it, folks. This is how it's going to be to the end of time. Jesus is our high priest forever. Verse 6 of chapter 5, the writer goes on to quote Psalm 110. He says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Everyone knows who Melchizedek is? No one's named their son Melchizedek, have they? He, he's a bit of a mystery character, really. Uh, Hebrews 7 really focuses in more on him. But he's actually only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. And very briefly, really, at that. Firstly, in Genesis 14. And then again, as we've mentioned, in, in Psalm 110 that the writer quotes here. But basically, very simply, Melchizedek is seen as a prophetic picture of Jesus. A prophetic picture of our high priest Jesus Christ. And firstly, in in Genesis 14, it describes Melchizedek as the priest of God Most High to Abraham. In other words, he predates the priesthood of Aaron and the tribe of Levi, okay? And since Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, I can imagine a lot of the Jewish believers would have had a hard time seeing Jesus as a high priest. Hold on, he's not a Levite. He's from the tribe of Judah, And so what the writer's saying here is, is, no, 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 he predates, he's from a much more superior priestly order. All the Levitical priests were just a, a, a foreshadow, a picture. He's from a superior one that predates from the beginning of time. In fact, we know that Melchizedek, no record of his birth or his death is recorded. There's no successor, nothing is mentioned, no beginning, no end. Again, it just points to this sense of eternal priesthood. Of Jesus. Also, Melchizedek's name simply means king of righteousness. It's a pretty amazing name, isn't it? He's described as the king of Salem, which is now we know as Jerusalem, but that means prince or king of peace. King of peace, king of righteousness. Ring any bells? Jesus, of course, is the king of righteousness. He is our Prince of Peace. He is both priest and king. He is the high priest, as we just read, who is seated on the throne. He is in heaven. It all points to him. That is why he is the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Because Jesus is fully divine, he represents us on heaven's throne. His sacrifice is absolutely perfect, and his priesthood is eternal. We can have confidence, complete assurance when we come to God because the Father looks to the Son and accepts us. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus was also fully human. It's one of those paradoxes. How can you be fully one thing and fully something else? He's God. He can be. Fully God, fully human. He poured out his divinity when he took on flesh, didn't he? He was filled by the Spirit. He didn't choose to rely on his divine attributes. He poured himself out. Scripture says like a drink offering. Poured himself out. Said, I'm going to take on flesh. I'm going to take on weakness. And being fully human means, therefore, he can truly empathize with our weakness. He can truly understand us. 
He walked in our shoes. He got tired and weary and hungry and angry. And as we've read here, was tempted in every single way. He gets you. He understands you, your struggles. Every little battle you face, Jesus knows what it's like. Just think about that. God gets you. You might think, no one gets me. No one understands me. God gets you. He understands you. He doesn't sit aloof and wagging his finger. Come back to me when you sort your life out. That's not our high priest. He understands. He says, I know. I know. Come to me. Come to me. I know the struggles you're facing. Uh, Every category, just think of that, every category of temptation Jesus faced. Okay? And he had plenty of opportunity to give in to that temptation. I mean, let alone the temptation in the wilderness where the, where the, the devil was really pressing every button that he could find. Every button. But even during Jesus' ministry, the temptation was there. He was surrounded a lot of the time by fawning people following his every word. The temptation for pride, for lust, for greed must have been great. But on the other hand, he was also despised, ridiculed, rejected, betrayed, tortured ultimately killed. Again, the temptation for bitterness and resentment, just despair, must have been absolutely huge too. And yet we read, he was without sin. Not once did he give in. Not once. And so on one hand, we can have massive confidence in approaching God's presence because he is perfect and he is divine. We've got an amazing one representing us in heaven. But on the other hand, we can have confidence because he is totally approachable. He totally understands us. He totally empathizes with us. And he calls us to come close, not to stand far off because he alone can help us. Come close. I'm who you need. I can help you through this. I can help you hold firmly to the faith that you profess. Folks, we come to a gentle, compassionate, understanding high priest. Chapter 5, verse 2. He is able to deal gently with us since he himself was subjected to weakness. It's so important that we understand both the divinity but also the humanity of Jesus. Secondly, being fully human, Jesus willingly submitted himself in obedience to his Father. You know, more than any other person, he really could have lauded it over people. In his commentary, Phil Moore says, you know, so often we like to think that the world revolves around us. You know, most of the world acts like I am the center of the universe. The world revolves around me. Thing is, in Jesus' case, the world really does revolve around him. In him and through him, the whole world is held together. And yet, 
And yet, he willingly chose to submit to the Father, even though that meant, and he knew it, many, many great sufferings. That's amazing, isn't it? Let's read chapter 5, verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. Just stop there for a minute. Just picture Jesus praying to his Father with fervent tears and cries. Have you ever done that? If you poured your heart out to God, tears streaming down your face, crying, God, will you break through? Will you change this situation? Listen, Jesus has been there. Jesus himself has been there. He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, that's through the resurrection, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. There's our friend Melchizedek again. I think, you know, the moment we read that, I guess the the immediate picture we get is of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, pouring out his heart to his Father. God, if there is any way, any other way, please help me to go through that, but not my will, but yours be done. Incredible submission, incredible submission. And, and, you know, we read here, he prayed to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Interesting point. Obedience to God gets the ear of God. Okay? God, are you hearing me? Check your heart. Am I actually following him? But here's the, here's the thing that really gets me. He was heard, and yet, didn't he still go to the cross? God, save me from death! And God answered, and yet he still went to the cross. He still suffered the most agonizing, torturous execution that still is known to man. And he died. Well, thanks for answering my prayers, God. And there's a really important truth here, which I really want us to grab hold of. Because very often, and most of us are very well aware of this, God's answer does not always look like the answer we were expecting or hoping for. The truth is, God did answer. And he did save Jesus from death. But not by avoiding the cross, but by raising Jesus back to life. He rescued him from death by raising him back to life, not by avoiding the cross. Because in doing so, death itself was defeated. 
completely defeated through the cross, through Jesus' sacrifice. And not just for him, but for everyone who trusts in his sacrifice. And for all time, that was God's answer. And that is a far better, greater answer, isn't it? And Jesus knew that. That's why he could say, not my will, but yours. The truth is we have such limited sight. We only see the issue. We only see the circumstances in front of us, yet God sees the person you are becoming. He sees the faith and the character that has been knocked and chipped into shape. He sees the people you are impacting around you as you go through your own trials and sufferings. He sees the end result. We too are shaped through obedience to simply following Jesus. The danger is disappointment can so easily build up in our hearts if we don't process these unmet expectations. Because that's what it is. When, when God doesn't answer us the way we hope or expect, these unmet expectations can start to build up a bit of resentment, a bit of disappointment. Can be with, we could be disappointed with other people. We can certainly be disappointed with God. When we have a set idea of how we want God to work in a particular circumstance, and it doesn't happen that way. Disappointment can easily take root. And, and as I was preparing it this, this week, I just felt God wanted, to, wanted us to focus on this. And I want us to have a time to really pray, minister, and worship together at the end. So just going to keep an eye on the clock and make sure we do give time for that. Because I think this is so important, because so often we don't even recognize that disappointment has, has laying in our hearts. And it can build up, and it can build up. And it comes out in other ways. You know, suddenly we find we're, we're getting a bit cynical about things. We get a bit apathetic. We get a bit dry our expectations lower. We start to disengage with God, but also with, with church life and just start to get a bit cynical. And it's like, actually, you know, it's very slow, very slow. But over time, our faith takes a hit. And often it's because there is disappointment in our hearts. Because basically what we know of God's character doesn't match up with our circumstances or our experience. And so we start to doubt God's character. We start to doubt his goodness. And it's a very subtle, subtle thing. Highfield Hall has just had its drains blasted. I'd just like you to all know that. I've got a lovely photo album of the inside of Highfield Hall's drains before and after the uh, blockages, which I could put up on it. No, I won't. But what had happened over the years is that sludgy limescale had been allowed to be built up 
and built up. And when we put the camera down, rather than being a pipe like that, the actual flowing area was about there. It was half the area. The whole bottom half was hardened, encrusted, sludgy lime scale. And so the flow was slowed right down, and it just kept on blocking. Ladies, thank you so much for your patience with your toilet. We're still working on it, but it should, the flow should be much greater. But you know what? Disappointment is a lot like that. It's an awful lot like that. If allowed to build up, it will limit the flow of life, the spirit flowing through our hearts and our lives. It will limit the peace and the joy and the faith that we once had. Things start to slow down. And like those drains, we need to get the sludge out. We need to get it out. We need to acknowledge our disappointment. We need to process it well. And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of um, a really helpful exercise that Wendy Mann um, describes. She teaches at the King's Arms Church in Bedford, has a real prophetic ministry. And I just want to run through quickly four steps that she recommends to help us process disappointment particularly. You might find this helpful to do in your life groups or, or break down into twos and threes, or maybe just spend time on your own, just with you and God. But as Wendy explains, you have to be intentional about this. You know, our drains didn't just unblock themselves. You know, let's just keep leaving it. Maybe eventually it will get flushed through. No, it just built up and built up. We need to get guys with ridiculously powerful jets and blast this sludge out. We too need to be proactive when it comes to dealing with disappointment, dealing with stuff that is keeping us far off when Christ has made the way. And the first point really is to express our disappointment out loud. Out loud. Some people will find this really hard because we're lovely, polite, nice Christians. And, and Wendy's advice is don't rush this and don't filter it. She was saying when she was going through a lot of pain because someone she was praying for had died, she felt what was in her heart was being filtered when it came out of her mouth. Suddenly it was a lot more holy when it came out of her mouth. And she was just brought up on that. She goes, no, no, I, I need to actually get what's in here out. This is, who I'm, this is what I'm really feeling. God knows what's in our hearts anyway. We don't have to polish it up for him. Express the pain. Express your disappointment. He is big enough. Get it out. Get it out. This is you blasting the disappointment out of your system. And Wendy says, you need to be thorough with this. Because if you don't get the sludge out, then the truth cannot get in deep. It will just remain on the surface. We want the truth to get in deep of who God really is. We've got to get the sludge out. And so really, it is being honest totally honest with God. I am disappointed. I feel wronged. I, this makes no sense at all. Where are you, God? This isn't right. Just lay it all out. Lay it all out. You might want to go for a long walk. You might just want to bury your head in your pillow. You might want to do it with a trusted friend, whatever. Whatever it takes, it needs to express itself. 
As I said, for some people, this might actually be a, a, quite a long process. It might, you might actually need to grieve and go through a process of real grieving. Maybe you just bottled stuff up. Others, you know, just, just getting it off your chest might be an instant release. An instant relief. Right, I, I needed to do that. Many of you will know that um, my dad died two weeks after Emily was born. And, I mean, talk about a roller coaster of emotions. But the thing is, I've, I've explained before in previous times, but my dad had been miraculously healed twice. Once in his 20s from polio, where he was in an iron lung, totally paralyzed. He could just kind of communicate through his one, one eyelid. And God, God's power just hit him from head to toe. He was totally healed, except for one muscle in his left leg, that he always had a slight limp. And it's almost like a little reminder, remember what I've done. And then in his 50s, he got epilepsy. And again, God completely removed epilepsy from him. He never had a single fit after he knew the power of God came upon him. Then he died from Parkinson's. And you're like, what? What? And, and it took me a while to work out that I was actually carrying a lot of disappointment with God from that. And it worked itself out subtly in the way that my faith to pray for other people to be healed evaporated. I realized I don't actually have faith for people to be healed. I had to deal with this disappointment and I literally had to get it off my chest. I had to pour out my disappointment, my frustration, my confusion. You know, God, you, you healed before. Why, why not again? Is Parkinson's too difficult? Was it your day off? Do you think, you know, two strikes, three's too much? You know, you only get two. All of these, it's just like, it doesn't make sense. I just poured it all out. But as I did that, I felt a release come. A real release come. It does us no favors to keep our disappointment in. We need to get the sludge out. Second point, I'll speed up a little bit. Spend time in the Psalms. Spend time in the Psalms. When you are in pain, when you are angry, frustrated, disappointed, words often fail us. I don't know where to begin. We'll begin in the Psalms. Here we have people pouring their heart out to God and maybe as you're reading through the Psalms, something will just resonate with you, and you can add your voice to theirs. Use the Psalms to help you process and give voice to your own pain and disappointment. Thirdly, really importantly, speak truth of who God is into your life. And again, Wendy's advice is don't rush to step three too early. The tendency is to jump straight to the truth because that's safe ground. We know, yeah, we know you're good. If you don't get the sludge, if you don't process the disappointment, this won't really reach deeply into your heart. But speak words of faith. Speak words of life into your heart. God, I know you are good. I know you are for me. I know that you have everything I need. It's all found in you. You are still healer. You are still provider. You are still good. In our Living Free course, we call this replacing, simply replacing lies with truth. As I said, if we rush to this point too quickly, it won't really sink in. But it's a vital point. 
When we clear out the sludge, we need to feed ourselves on truth. The fourth step, which is possibly the hardest one, give up your right to understand. Give up your right to understand. As I said, it made no sense with my dad. A lot of what we go through in life makes absolutely no sense. And yet, as we refuse to take offense with God, as we refuse to demand an answer from God, as we lay down our right to an explanation, actually, that's when real peace comes. Because do you know what that is? That is surrendering. It's surrendering to God. It's saying, God, I don't understand it, but I trust you. I trust you. When we do that, his peace comes. He gives peace, he says, that transcends all understanding. There's no explanation for a lot of what happens, but peace still comes, and it goes beyond questions. It goes beyond understanding, and it changes everything. Even if our circumstances don't change, we are changed because we are experiencing this peace that goes beyond, surpasses all understandings. And listen, it's this heart of surrender to the Father that Jesus modeled so beautifully. So beautifully. We just read in verse 8 of chapter 5, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. He learned obedience and once made perfect became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. He totally trusted and obeyed his father, even in the most imaginable difficulties. That is what we're called to do as well. Notice it doesn't say he's the source of salvation for all who believe in him, but actually goes one step further, for all who obey him. Because real faith always produces real action. Real action. And for me, going back to me processing disappointment with my father, that action meant stepping out and purposely praying for people to be healed. Because the truth is, when we purposely minister to others in the very area we ourselves have been disappointed in, that is a devastating blow to the enemy as well as our disappointment. Again, in Living Free, we talk about walking in the opposite spirit. And it is just kingdom economy that we are in an upside-down kingdom. The kingdom of God loves to redeem situations completely. That's what the cross demonstrated so beautifully. It brings life out of death. It brings victory out of what looked like failure. It brings healing out of pain. And when we minister exactly in the area we ourselves have been disappointed in, that is seriously powerful. The power of darkness trembles 
because we're bringing light in the darkness. We're bringing hope in despair. We're turning the situation around. What the enemy meant for harm, God meant for good. We're breaking that. We're redeeming it. And we're doing it in our own lives and in the lives of others. We're not alone, church. No one is alone. We have an incredible high priest interceding for us in heaven, empowering us by his Holy Spirit. He is our mediator. He is our righteousness. He is our savior. He is Jesus Christ. Fully perfect, yet also fully approachable. I don't know where you are at this morning. I don't know how you're feeling, what you're facing, what you think about yourself, or what you think about God. The call is very clear. Let us all draw near to God, to his throne of grace with confidence, not in ourselves, but in Jesus, our great high priest. And he will help us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Amen? Amen. Jesus, we just are so incredibly grateful for your perfect obedience, your perfect sacrifice. And for everyone here who confesses you are Lord, I thank you that there is full access into the very presence of God that right now in Christ we are seated in heavenly places. Whatever we need, you already know. I pray for fresh faith to come in people's hearts this morning.